Thank you for listening to this selection from bradhambrick.com. Brad serves as pastor of counseling at the Summit Church in Durham, North Carolina, and is excited to produce resources that equip believers and resource churches to care well for one another in their community. We pray that this serves you well, and we hope that you'll consider utilizing other resources from bradhambrick.com for your personal growth and ministry endeavors. Well, the subject of burnout, uh, it is one that, uh, that I think as a church at large, uh, we definitely have to deal with. Uh, but I think in particular, uh, at a church where I am as excited to be a part of as I am as a part of Summit, uh, where uh, our heart really is to impact our community and change the world for Christ, and there are the number of uh, opportunities uh, to be involved in incredibly exciting ministries uh, where weekly we see lives being changed and there is the opportunity to participate in something that would be as thrilling as I feel like the things are here that we get to be a part of. Uh, I think we have to address the subject of burnout uh, because it, it just places us in a position where we can be uh, so uh, so susceptible to it. And so as we get started here, what I thought I would do is just uh, walk us through a case study of how does somebody get into uh, a situation of burnout. Uh, and we'll call this person Bob. And if you knew Bob, one of the first things that you would notice is that Bob cares. Uh, Bob cares greatly. Uh, he cares about his family. Uh, he loves spending time with his kids. Uh, if he ever doesn't get to take his wife out on a date during a week, it's just a point of, of burden for him, and he misses that, and he wants to do it. Uh, but Bob doesn't just care about his family. Uh, he cares about people. He cares about the people that he works with. He takes the time to ask an extra question and really listen. Uh, he cares about uh, his small group. He cares about the people in his community and the ministries that he's a part of. I mean, he just he cares for people. And he also cares about his work. Uh, he, he enjoys what he does. He wants to be excellent at it. He wants to advance, uh, not just for the, the profit that he gains from that financially, but to be a good representative of Christ uh, in, his, uh, in his workplace. And so Bob just cares. And Bob's the kind of person that if we got to know him, every one of us would like Bob, and we would want to be like Bob. Uh, but as he cares... Uh, what we find is that the better he does at anything, the more great opportunities come his way. Uh, and, and because he wants to honor God, anytime that there's an open door to do something, he tries to facilitate whatever that is because he wants to honor God with every opportunity that's coming his way. Um, but soon, uh, there's just more that Bob is doing uh, than he can pull off. And he finds that he's getting tired. He's not just physically tired. Uh, he's mentally, emotionally, and spiritually tired. Uh, but, uh, you know, he, he's likable enough and he's talented enough that he can pull it off with most people. And most people don't notice, um, except for his wife. And she starts to try to caution him to take some extra time. Uh, but, but he doesn't want to do that. And so he, he, he uses uh, guilt uh, just to kind of, this artificial sugar boost to get himself back in the game. And that these are people who need him and these are things that aren't going to get done. And so he uses guilt just to push himself and get himself back in the game. Uh, but the fatigue, it keeps coming back. And now uh, Bob starts to get a little cynical. He's a caring guy who's starting not to care. Uh, he, he just finds that the guilt isn't enough uh, to keep him going. Uh, there's this sense of duty, uh, not wanting to disappoint, uh, but because he's doing most of what he's doing out of this sense of duty and not wanting to disappoint, he finds that he's beginning to resent the people who are close to him. His family, uh, those that, that he's doing ministry with, um, and when, when they just kind of want the old Bob back and they ask him what's wrong, it just becomes this reminder that they don't get it. They don't understand. They don't really care about him. They just care about what he can do. And 
um, you know, pretty soon Bob is just going through the motions at work and home and church, trying to survive. Uh, you know, at this point, life is just a black and white movie uh, with the themes of duty and responsibility. And really, anything that will introduce a little bit of freedom, a little bit of color into that black and white world, he begins to view as good. You know, it's, it's the attention of his secretary who is just there to help him and assist him. And when she asks, you know, how is your day? What can I do to help? She really seems to mean it. It's those couple of drinks that just take the edge off at the end of the day. It's those impulse purchases just to show that he can do whatever he wants at some moment. And there's a little bit of freedom in that. Yet, and at this point, whenever Bob's wife or his friends or maybe better yet, old friends as he calls them now, begin to caution him about some of the things that he's doing, he really begins to resent and push away and say, these people don't get me. They don't care. They just want stuff from me. They don't want anything for me. And you can kind of guess where this is going. Bob's work performance falls off. He starts to have an affair with his secretary, and the few drinks become more than just a few. Uh, His wife sees a questionable email on the computer. She tries to approach him. He gets defensive. It blows up. In a short period of time, he is fired from his work. He's living in an apartment with his secretary, seeing his kids every other weekend at McDonald's. And he's wondering, how did I get here? I mean, I taught classes on all of this kind of stuff, and it wasn't supposed to turn out this way. And in those moments when, when his conscience comes to life enough that he will ask the question, there's this moment of overwhelmed confusion. Um, and I think the subject of burnout explains a lot of what's going on. It doesn't give us excuses. It doesn't explain away what happened. But it does begin to help us see that Bob's life was in danger even when it looked like it was on the up and up and things was everything going his way. And so what I want us to do is we try to figure out what happened to Bob and what could we do to prevent that kind of situation in our life. I really just want us to try to answer three questions. Uh, What is burnout? What causes burnout? And how can I prevent burnout? And so we start with that first question, what is burnout? And some people might say, you know, burnout, isn't that just just fatigue? Isn't that just being like really tired? Um, But if it were just fatigue, then a three-day weekend would make it better if we would allow ourselves to take it. Um, But once we got that three-day weekend, we got rested up, we would feel like we were back in the game. Or other people might say burnout, isn't that just stress? Isn't that just kind of being overwhelmed with life and the number of projects that we've got going? Um, But if that were the case, then when we completed the next project or we got past that next deadline, then the experience would lift. Uh, The motivation and drive for life would return. Um, But within burnout, that doesn't really happen. Or what about depression? You know, is, is burnout just depression by another name, kind of, workforce depression. And I think depression gets a little closer because it captures some of the hopelessness that can begin to take root during burnout. But I don't know that depression quite captures uh, that cynical and, and almost rebellious nature that can come in that, that we're pushing against something uh, when we are experiencing burnout. And so, if we were to ask, you know, what is the closest category? Uh, The one that that makes the most sense to me is it's kind of like a midlife crisis that you can face at any point during your life. Uh, And part of what we have to realize as we're trying to define burnout is that burnout is a popular term. It's what we'd call a pop psych term. It's it's not something that we would find in the DSM uh, that has a codified definition. Uh, and so when we say it's, it's kind of like a midlife crisis, well, midlife crisis is a popular term like that. And what is it that happens at midlife? Well, we've been putting all of our energy and drive towards a particular dream, or maybe multiple dreams. And then we realize that that's not quite going to give us everything that we wanted, and we don't know what quite to do with that. 
And so with burnout, there's this element that there is something that I was passionate about and I was hoping that it was going to be able to pay off on this level of satisfaction and it just doesn't quite do it. And so uh, let's, let's go back to Bob. Uh, let's trace his steps and see what happened in the life of Bob and go through what might be considered uh, some stages of burnout. Well, the first stage, the first thing we learned about Bob is that he cares. He cared deeply. Um, you, you really don't reach burnout unless you're a person who cares a lot about what you're doing. Uh, and so in that sense, I want to give us kind of a, a sense in which we hold up this experience, or at least a, a thing that makes us susceptible to it, without over-highlighting it. At one level, we should all want to be susceptible to burnout. Because we want to have something that we are greatly passionate about. Uh, that gives us a reason to get up out of bed in the morning and, and we have a sense of drive. But on the other hand, we do not want to make burnout the purple heart of ministry. As if it was the high badge and that, that if we all could get to the point of burnout and just be completely tanked out, that somehow that's what it means to be really spiritual. Um, but it's not just passion alone or caring that creates burnout. We get to that point of having an undisciplined and unrealistic life. Uh, Bob began to think that every good opportunity that came his way was an open door by God that he should walk through. Uh, and as somebody who was talented and likable, just there was this gravitational quality to the number of things that came into his life that, that was just unrealistic. And at that point, uh, what, he, what he did was uh, he began to experience fatigue. And it's oftentimes at this point that we begin to look for better life management techniques. Uh, you know, we get a day planner, we get a smartphone, and that's good. We begin to try to refine life. And we, in, as we make certain parts of our life more efficient, we don't make room for rest. We just find ways to be more productive with that time that we found. Um, and so what we do is we wind up punting the crash further down the road and making it bigger when we get there. And so by becoming more efficient, it, we become more impressive on the outside, but there's sense of kind of this hollow, inevitable crash on the inside. Well, what did Bob do uh, when he got fatigued? Well, he began to use guilt and shame as his motivators. And at one level, guilt and shame are great motivators. It's almost like they are the adrenaline button of the soul. They push us. We can use those to drive us. Um, you know, kind of that 2.30 feeling in the midst of life. And they, they, they keep us going. But the problem is, uh, they are that kind of artificial sugar boost of energy. They give us energy without any of the nutritional value that the gospel would provide to actually make life uh, sustainable and enjoyable. Well, again, if we're using guilt and shame to motivate ourselves, the next stage in the process makes total sense. If my conscience is being used against me and I can't get out from under it, the only thing that makes sense to be done is to turn off the conscience. And that's when I grow calloused and cynical. Uh, but in many ways, this is like the cancer patient going through chemo. And the chemo is, is something that has a lot of adverse effects and they don't like it. And they say the cure is worse than the disease. And so they, they back off and initially there's a moment of relief. Uh, but the underlying disease is, is still growing larger. And if we turn off our conscience, that, that part of our soul that God has given us to say that something is wrong, uh, then the kinds of things that would drive us, they become different things. Uh, but we lose the benefit of what that internal alarm system was meant to be. And then the next stage in the process uh, was failure and crisis. Now, not every failure and crisis is going to be as dramatic uh, as the case study that I gave with Bob, where he winds up having an affair in an apartment, only seeing his kids every other week. Um, but we get to the point where, where life is unsustainable. Uh, and we we really begin to be upset with those who benefited from what we were doing. And so the very people who are 
probably the people who would come around us to care because we feel like they are the ones who unfairly benefited from what we were doing. We push ourselves away from those relationships. And then finally we hit that stage of realization where in the midst of whatever the, uh, the crisis or failure was, uh, we, we recognize that, that life isn't working. And, um, you know, sometimes, um, you know, the crisis happens and, and things don't go well and burnout sets in and we don't learn to rely on the gospel in that season of our life. And burnout just becomes a season of emotional time out. Uh, and then whenever we get back into life, whether it be the same kinds of things we were doing before or another venue, then it's just waiting for it to happen again. Or what I hope we get from a presentation like this is what would it look like to begin to rest in what God offers us in the gospel so that if we have gotten to that place of burnout, that, that this season of time out and being restored doesn't mean that when we get back in the game it's just a different verse of the same song but that it can be something that is much more sustainable and God-honoring. Now, and so with that in mind, we, we ask the next question. Uh, what causes burnout? Um, you know, if we've kind of said that's what burnout is, uh, where does it come from? Uh, and I think one of the first things that we have to recognize is that burnout is never caused by a single area of life. Uh, burnout is a function of our total life management. Now, there may be one area of life that's kind of leading the cause, but if we were making healthy choices in the other area of our life, it would, by definition, keep that area that we're most passionate about from getting out of control. And so in a, in a church context like this, oftentimes we can get really upset uh, with church and ministry and saying that's what causes burnout. If I were giving the same talk within a business environment, then the tendency would be to say, you know, that it is, uh, it's work. That's what causes it. If I was giving uh, this talk to uh, a group of moms who were homeschooling, then they would say, family, that's what's causing it. And it, that we have a tendency to blame whatever that most vital part of our life is. But we have to recognize that burnout is a function of our total life management. And so... If I were going to give the cause of burnout, I would simply say it is a result of living beyond our means with the time and energy God has given us. And when we hear the phrase, living beyond our means, our inclination is to think in terms of finances. Uh, and, and I think that's a really healthy parallel that we'll come back to several times. But we kind of know what it means to live beyond our means financially. I mean, it's a little easier to track that. We get a paycheck and we get receipts when we spend money. And you can kind of tell, I made X dollars and I've spent two times X dollars. That, uh, you can see that. Uh, but when it comes to time and energy, we don't get a paycheck and we don't get receipts. And so it's harder to keep up with that. But in developing this parallel, one of the things that I want us to see that I think becomes important is that the only thing that we have to spend is our time. The only thing that we have to spend is our time. We live in an economy where we trade hours for dollars and dollars for stuff. Dollars are just the intermediary of spending our time. We get education and experience and other things so that we can trade the same hours for more dollars and get more stuff. But again, all we spend is our life. That's why when we teach on finances, we say finances are a worship issue because we are spending our life when we spend our money. It, uh, and so let's, let's begin to ask the question, how would we create a time budget? Well, and I think you, you start creating a time budget the same way you start creating a financial budget. You ask the question, what have we got to spend? And with time, we get a 168-hour week. We get a 672-hour month, and we get an 8,760-hour year. And you say, that's really cute that you can spit off those numbers. What good does that do? Um, well, 
here is my guiding premise. God's will fits within God's provision. Everything that I say, because God is fair, I am going to operate on the assumption that God's will fits within God's provision. And so the implication of that is, God's will for my life fits within a 168-hour week. Now, if you are at all like me, I can come up with 200 to 250 hours worth of good stuff to do on any given week. That's before I take time out to sin. But here is what this point in the presentation, this is where it gets us. If I have 200 hours worth of good stuff that I think needs to be done this week, I can rest in the fact that 32 hours of that is outside the will of God, not because it's bad, but because He's fair. Because God's will fits within God's provision. And if I don't have that as the foundation for how I think through a time budget, then I'm going to allow guilt and shame and opportunity and sad eyes and guilt trips to push me well beyond where I need to be. Now, so let's begin to think through what would we do if we were, how would we begin to allocate a time budget? And so I'm going to give us two sets of three, kind of the first three and the second three. Um, and, and, and what we can't do with this, uh, and I'm going to try to give you some numbers and laying these things out, but what we can't do is take a 7 by 24 hour Excel chart, color coded, and then say this is exactly what our life ought to look like. If you know me, I am compulsive enough, I would try this. Uh, even as someone who would try it and would want to live by it, I know it has no opportunity to succeed. But I think we do have to have some well-defined priorities that oftentimes we, we don't think through well. And so let's, let's think through time budget. The first thing on our big three is sleep. And I would say we need to devote 50 hours per week for sleep. If we are not consistently getting at least 7 hours of sleep per night, then then life is not sustainable. And, And I think God wants us to have this. That's why He created in the beginning this sense of Sabbath that was to be a regular part and He would command us to rest. Because here's another one of my guiding assumptions. God often honors our finiteness much more than we do. God knows that He made me a finite creature who required rest and recreation. He built that into what He expected of me, and I'm the one who wants to be infinite. I'm the one who wants to do everything. I'm the one who thinks I can run on four hours of sleep a night because there is just so much good stuff that needs to be done. But God honors my finiteness often much more than I do. I would go so far as to say this. Part of my submitting to the Lordship of Christ is to be a good steward of my body so that I can honor Him with the rest of my life. Knowing that He made me as a finite creature and honoring that aspect of how He made me is part of submitting to the Lordship of Christ. For those of us who are in leadership positions, let me just throw this out as a word of caution. We do not lead other people well when we live unreasonable lives. When those who look up to us and say, that is what I would love to do and be, and they see something in us that is unrealistic and unsustainable, we do not lead them well by living unrealistic lives. So, 50 hours a week, we put to sleep. Again, these are general parameters here, but I said we put another 50 hours towards work. 
Now again, that different season of life, different role, that can look different ways. Uh, that could be employed, that could be being a student, both your time in class and studying. Uh, if you're a full-time mom, that definitely counts your time with kids. Uh, I mean, it, that 50 hours a week uh, fulfilling that aspect where God would say, I have asked you to have dominion over the world. Uh, that I want you to be doing things and stewarding and advancing creation and my agenda for the world, that, that, that about 50 hours is what we can realistically take and say, this is what uh, we do with that. And then the second of the, the big three uh, is family. Uh, and here, uh, my recommendation is 17 hours. Now you may say, why 17 hours? I picked 17 hours for two reasons. One, it is a prime number, and so you will take me seriously. Uh, if I gave you a number that was like 10, 15, 20, and it ended in a 5, you would not take me seriously. And you're like, anytime I'm like north of 7, I'm good. Um, it, and so I picked a prime number so you would take me seriously. The second reason I picked that number is because it is a tithe of our week. It is 10%. Uh, you take 168 hours, you divide it by 10, you get 16.8. So I cheated by like 0.2. Um, but I believe my marriage and family deserves and that it honors God that they get at least a tithe of my time. And what I find is that when I give that much time to them, it is satisfying and enjoyable enough that I am looking for ways to find more. When I give less than that, things tend to get at odds enough that it, it's kind of just not that much fun, and so it begins to look for excuses to give less. And so if you take those recommendations, that means of our 160-hour week, 117 are in that big three. And we're going to come back to these in, in a bit. So, so now we ask that, that next 51. And I can't, I'm not going to try to give recommendations on what we do with those, but I will give you three areas that I think we divide that next 51 in between. Maintenance. Mowing the grass, getting the grocery, uh, cleaning the house, just, just what it takes to, to do life. Um, then there's also recreation. Those things that are restorative, that are enjoying our hobbies, that, those kinds of things. And then service, uh, caring for other people. Uh, and so those are the three areas, and we're not going to give uh, specific hour recommendations like we did on the first big three. But I will give us some concepts that I think help us begin to make uh, some allocations here. And I think we would, I think it would help us if we use some budgeting categories again to think through this. So when I teach on budgeting, if you go to Creating a Gospel-Centered Marriage, Finances, you came to that seminar, you would know uh, that we divided a budget into four categories. Uh, that at, at the top of the budget, you need those things that are fixed necessities. Those things that cost the same each and every month, and we got to have them. Uh, and so rent or mortgage, uh, your insurances, those are fixed and they're necessity. Then you have variable necessity. Those things that aren't the same every month, but we got to have them. Um, groceries and gas for the car. Uh, then you have fixed luxuries. Um, those things that cost the same each and every month. We don't have to have them, but they're nice to have. Uh, cable and other subscriptions, things like that. And then you have variable luxuries. They don't cost the same each and every month. The price is going to fluctuate. Uh, but um, you know, it's not, they're not, we don't have to have them, but they're nice to have. Uh, going out to eat, other forms of entertainment, that, that when we begin to organize our life that way, it helps us make good decisions. And what we see when we look at that in terms of a financial budget is usually uh, in the average household, unless you're making seven figures, uh, about 75% of your budget, uh, if you have set up your budget well and don't have uh, various forms of debt, then about 75% of your budget goes to your necessities. And you're only making a decision about 20 to 25% of your budget with luxuries. Well, in terms of how we think through our time, we find that there's a similar breakdown. 
if we set aside the big three and the next three, then, then these three things are going to take 65 70% of our week. And, and then we're making decisions with about that remaining 30% of what's there. And our expectations have to meet up with that. So just as a quick side note on that whole time and finances thing, one of the things that I find that frequently gets people into burnout is not necessarily that they've got this driving passion, but they don't manage their time well, and they do lots of entertainment stuff, and then they have to work extra hours in order to pay for everything that they did, and so that part of their life gets out of whack. And and so you can kind of get there uh, both ways. But we are, we're trying to think, we've got this next three. And this is where we have maintenance and service and recreation. How do we divide those things? And here, I want to give us a distinction in the way that we would think through it. And I'm going to take two words that are both good. Okay? not saying one word is good and one word is bad, but I'm going to take two words that are both good. Uh, And I'm going to say one is realistic, one is unrealistic because I am using them admittedly in an atypical sense. If you go to a theological dictionary, you will not find these words used in the way that that I'm about to use them. But I think it's... I have found it helpful in talking with people and how to think through. And so we talk about generosity and sacrifice. So um, the way that we're going to use those words is generosity is being more generous with those 51 hours than we would otherwise be because we want to advance the cause of Christ in our spheres of influence. Sacrifice is dipping into that 117 in a way that is unsustainable. And so uh, our goal here is to say that generosity is a great way of life. Sacrifice, in the way that I'm defining it, dipping into that 117, is something we may do on occasion, but it is not a sustainable way of life. And so what I recommend to folks is that they have a balance between their planned uh, and unplanned uh, generosity. And so your planned generosity are those things that have a, a daily, weekly, or monthly commitment. So if you're leading a small group, if you're part of a ministry team, those things that would have a regular involvement, that, that is planned generosity with that, with that 51 hours that we're saying is in that second block of time. And when you take on something um, that's part of your planned generosity, it should be part of your passion and gifting. It should fit you well. Um, And those commitments should be made after you review your time budget, whether you've got a formal one or whether you're thinking it through in your head, and in consultation with your family. Um, Now, uh, the spontaneous generosity is just making sure we have some time in our life so that when a need pops up, that that we are willing and in a position to to be able to do that. Uh, And again, sacrifice is when we dip into that 117. When... Doing this means we're not going to be able to sleep a regular amount. Uh, That it's going to begin to cut into our time with our family that should be set aside for them because family is a higher priority than than some of these other... When sacrifice is when we would cut into those things. And so a sacrifice should be made, uh, I would say, uh, in consultation with a community of trusted Christian friends. If I'm going to do that, I need some people who think this through with me and will hold me accountable to keep it in the parameters that we set. It needs to be done in concert with the efforts of one's church. If I'm doing this totally on my own as a matter of sacrifice and I don't have any other group of people there, then it's not going to be something that short-term it's going to be ongoing. And uh, when it's defined on a short-term basis. Now, you may say, where are we getting this kind of stuff scripturally? I mean, what kind of scriptural example would we give? Uh, and I think the, one of the best examples of that is the interaction between uh, Moses and his father-in-law, Jethro. Uh, and, and so the situation was that Moses was leading the people out of the promised land. Uh, and these were people who for ten generations had lived as slaves meaning they didn't know how to make a lot of life decisions on their own. Uh, They were a needy group of people to lead. 
And, and so what happened is that from sunup to sundown, they were coming to Moses to adjudicate everything that was going on in their world. Because they hadn't lived as free people who did this on their own. Uh, and Jethro was watching it. And uh, it's kind of a meddlesome father-in-law. Uh, he said, what you're doing is not good. Now, if I'm Moses, I'm going to get a little defensive at this point. I mean, these people are coming to me. And if what I was doing wasn't helping, the line wouldn't be as long as it is. And if they thought that they could get what they were getting from me from somebody else, they would spread out because they're not going to sit in the line that long. What do you mean it's not good? But look at what he goes on to say. What you're doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out. And so when he said it was not good, he was not talking about the quality or the content of what Moses was doing. He was talking about the sustainability of it. And so here's another one of those principles that I would just put out there for us to, to kind of wrap our heart around. If what we're doing is not sustainable, then it is not good no matter how necessary it may be. If what we're doing is not sustainable, then it is not good no matter how, how necessary it may be. And here's the really cool part about this for me as I think about Moses and his father-in-law. Moses was one of those people, probably more than any other human being on the planet in the course of human history, that when he wrote something down, it came from the mouth of God himself. I mean, he was the man on the mountain getting the tablets written with the hand of God. He was the one, thus says the Lord, more than just about anybody else in a direct way. And then he said, my father-in-law gave me this piece of advice that was so good, I am putting it in the Bible. I mean, this is one of the few things that we get out of the pen of Moses. Again, under the inspiration of God, I'm not trying to you know, add Jethro as the fourth member of the Trinity or anything like that, but just that this is one of the few times when Moses says, this is a game changer. Um... And so, uh, I think we need to see that. And so, here is what uh, I advise you to do. And I give you, I give you a couple of handouts. Uh, they're, they're a time budget sheet uh, that has rows and columns and everything my little OCD heart loves. Um, it, but I give you one that's already filled out with somebody else's overdrawn schedule on it. And, and I do that for a reason. Um, one, I just want you to get familiar with the tool. We won't ever use a tool that feels foreign to us. So I want you to get familiar with the tool. But I think it's going to be easier if you start making cuts in somebody else's life. Uh, if you just have somebody else and you say, this is what I would have them cut. Um, because it, you just won't have that same emotional attachment to it that you do with your stuff. Uh, but to orient you here just a little bit, uh, you know, you've got a spot where you write out what you're doing. I advise you to kind of group it in areas. Uh, we've, I've done this one based on the, the six areas, kind of the first three and the second three, delineating that so you can see some level of prioritization. Uh, but then for you to mark, uh, if you look at some of the columns that exist, is this essential? Again, not everything on your schedule will be essential. Uh, if it is, then that's part of the problem. If you mark everything as essential, that's an issue. Um, but then also to ask yourself, is this energy giving or is this energy taking? Because you know, some of the things might be big ticket items, but you gain energy from that. Or you may look and say, I started that and it was energy giving and it's become overwhelming and now it's energy taking. Uh, we'll come to that again in just a little bit. But, but to look at that, 
then I ask you to, to break it down, uh, whether it be on a seven-day week or a four-week month. And I add both of those columns in there because some of us have schedules that pivot really well on a weekly basis. Uh, I mean, the beginning of the week is the beginning of the routine, and that's what works for us. Other of us work a swing shift or something like that, and we just need a larger unit of time to kind of see what that rhythm of life would build itself around. And so I think it's a little easier to use this if your schedule will build around a week. Uh, if it doesn't, then I put the month part out there. And, and then a spot where you can you know, just make some notes about what needs to change. And this is the kind of thing we're talking with a friend, and you go ahead and put some of that down. I think it cultivates uh, some good conversation. And then there's also just a blank uh, that you can use. Uh, if you go to bradhambrick.com backslash burnout, uh, you can get a PDF version of this. If you go, oh, I made a mess on it the first time and I need to look at it again, uh, that's available there. Uh, we'll put the video from this presentation up so that it's available for you. But then also if you go, I have got some people in my life that they need to hear this and this would be a great way for me to come alongside some people and care for them in this area. Everything that we do, one of our plumb lines is a counseling ministry is that we don't do events, we create resources. We want anything that we do to be something that can be placed in your hands, that you utilize in your sphere of influence uh, to care for the people that are around you. And so um, that is what causes burnout. But it's not the totality. Because uh, if, we, if we begin to think, we didn't get to the point of burnout because we didn't have a cool Excel sheet. I mean, the cause of burnout is not document deficiency disorder. Uh, that, is, that is not why we struggle with burnout. Um, so we've, um, we've been practical. Now I'm going to invite you to be honest. Uh, and, and I'll try to model honesty here for you. And, and we have to look at the motives of burnout. Uh, I give you nine. We're only going to talk about three of them. I don't even think those nine are exhausted. But I just want to give you a sample of what it looks like to engage with these kinds of things. Uh, one motive for burnout can be pride. I want it done right. And I'm the only one who can do blank. Whatever it is, that thing that you do, I'm the only one who can do it. Now, I recognize that God has gifted each one of us a bit differently. And so at times, it may be that you're the only one who can do what you do. Well, my first, my first caution to you is just to ask yourself if that's really true. And if it is, uh, then my biggest recommendation is to begin to look at multiplying yourself and investing yourself that you can sh in someone you can share that load with. Uh, instead of living in the place where you are the only one uh, who can do that. Uh, I think another is fear. Uh, Winston Smith wrote a, uh, a great booklet on burnout as well. And uh, in there, he used a case study. He called his guy Bob as well. So he's talking about his Bob. He says, Bob lived out of a sense of shame and inadequacy that had dogged him his entire life. In his heart, Bob considered himself a failure and a fraud. He lived as if it were just a matter of time until he was exposed as a failure at every level. His busyness was a failed attempt to address a problem with who he was as a person. Um, and I think if we're honest, a lot of us will just admit that's where we live. Uh, whatever good things have happened and we've done and we've been a part of them, we recognize they are not nearly as dependent upon us as other people might want to think and give us credit for. Um, you know, one of the things that just freaks me out about being at the Summit, uh, the Summit Church has more members than my hometown did citizens. I grew up 30 minutes from the nearest McDonald's. And I live and work and do ministry in a community with great universities like Duke and UNC, NC State, NC Central that, that are just well beyond anything that I knew and grew up with. And so there is a sense in which I wonder when are people going to figure out that I am just a little hillbilly boy that wandered his way into the city. 
Uh, and so whatever that thing may be for you, what are those areas where fear that it doesn't allow you to be known? And when you're not known, it doesn't allow anybody around you to care for you? And so that you feel like you are giving always more than you are getting from any given relationship? And that relational deficit, because you won't let yourself be known, inevitably churns the train in the direction of burnout. And there's only one way around that, uh, and that's honesty. Um, you know, one of them on there, uh, addicted to my own level of productivity. Uh, that phrase uh, I, I picked up from Tim Keller in his book, The Meaning of Marriage. Uh, and when he talked about being a church planner, he said, look, I just became addicted to my own level of productivity. Um, but, uh, you know, another one, perfectionism. Uh, if it's worth doing, it's worth doing right. Uh, when I put my name on something, uh, it bothers me if it's not just the way it's supposed to be. Um, and again, I'm a self-attested recovering perfectionist, sometimes recovering more than others. Um, but oftentimes what happens when we are a perfectionist is we reduce our world to the size of things that we do well. And in a day and age of specialization, that is very easy to do. Because I spend the vast majority of my day only interacting with people in my areas of strength and interest. And it's really those people who are closest to me and know me best are the ones who would ask me to do things outside of my areas of strength uh, and interest. And so I have to fight the tendency to reduce my world to the size of the things that I do well. Uh, and I've given a, a name for what I try to do for that. Uh, you won't find it in any like official book or anything like that. Uh, but I call it the spiritual discipline of awkwardness. Uh, and as soon as I said that, J.D. was excited because he's like, I've got that in spades! I'm like, I'm not sure we're talking about the same thing. Um, but uh, the spiritual discipline of awkwardness, where I do things intentionally that are not things that I am good at, simply to remind myself that I live by grace. And so again, cooking, it's not necessarily something that I do well, but it's one of those things that, that on a, I do just, just because it's a little bit fun and that my family doesn't go hungry or get some kind of E. coli bacteria if I don't do it well. I, I cannot do it well and it's okay. I would go so far as to say failure is a good thing. When I get the opportunity to speak in the area of parenting, one of the things that I try to hit as hard as anything else is the best time I have to influence my boys is when I fail. Because it's in those moments that I get to model for them what genuine repentance looks like. that what it means to own what I didn't do right, what I didn't do well, without it having this kind of slimy, icky, self-pity, uh, blame-shifting kind of garbage all around it. That, you know, me as their father, I can show them what a healthy, masculine repentance looks like. I get the opportunity to show them that in owning that, in restoring relationship, that actually in owning that, the overall relationship quality is much better because of what happened and that repentance really does lead to life in a way that hiding and denial and blame shifting never do. And it doesn't just have to be those areas where I would need to repent but just doing other things that are talent and skill level things. Uh, you know, there was a point where my oldest son 
uh, he, he thought he wanted to take the guitar. This was when he was like three years old. And so I uh, got really excited. I said, you know, if he wants to take guitar lessons, I went and got a guitar, and that was going to be something that I could do with him. I have no musical ability whatsoever. Uh, when we are in worship and there is clapping and singing, I can choose. I can do one or the other. I cannot do both. My wife will tell you I am not lying and making this up. If I begin to clap with everybody else, I lose the ability to ring English words on the screen. I just cannot get them out of my mouth. And if I focus on the words and I'm actually doing them, then I am the popcorn clapper. Uh, I am just offbeat with everything else. But that would be the kind of thing that even though I wasn't good at it, I would want to do simply to allow that aspect of living by grace, and you don't have to be excellent at everything, uh, to be a part of the culture. Uh, and I give you a spot there where you can just put others and kind of write in things um, that, that may be those driving motives for you. And that brings us to the third question. How can I prevent burnout? Um, and uh, well, give us a few things here that... Um, that I think are helpful. One is start your day in a demeanor of relaxed dependence. And this may include having a quiet time, but I don't just mean reading your Bible and praying. We'll come to that at a, a separate point here. But I think oftentimes, as Christians, we begin to view ourselves as God's employees more than God's children. in that sense that we just get to start our day with Him. And that it is a relationship. We, we start our day in this performance-driven mentality with our Father in a way that just wrecks everything that we do after that. Uh, stewarding your body in terms of eating healthy, exercise and sleep, um, it, those things are vitally important. Practice stillness. Um, yeah, there, there are times when I just sit in my office. Uh, I'm feeling stressed out. Uh, I have a fish tank, and, and I take a moment, and I sit in my chair. Even if the phone rings, I don't answer it. And I just do nothing for about five minutes. Simply to show myself that if I do nothing for five minutes, the world will not fall off its axis. Because sometimes I get amped up and driven enough that I begin to live as if I do nothing for a few minutes and you know the space-time continuum is going to implode. Um, and I just need to practice stillness, to be still and know that He is God for a few minutes to shake that off um, and, and think differently. It have non-functional friends. This is different from dysfunctional friends. Uh, but but non-functional friends. Friends who know you by your first name and not by your title or position. One of the healthiest things I do is coach. Because there are a group of people who know me simply as coach. Uh, and, and I will tell you this, at the beginning of every season, I send all emails from the family email address because initially I don't want people to know that I'm a pastor. I want them to know me as Brad and as coach. And then it's at some point about halfway through the season that I'll begin to send emails from my work email because I do want to use it as an outreach opportunity and that kind of thing. But I want the basis of that relationship to be non Functional, not on the basis of title of pastor or counselor. Uh, and, and I think that is a very good and healthy thing to do. Pay attention to when your pleasures lose their pleasure. I think this may be one of the most important litmus tests that, that I could put out there. When you don't enjoy what you normally enjoy. That is a huge red flag. If I can't enjoy fantasy football, that's a warning sign. Not because there is anything virtuous about fantasy football, 
But when I feel pressure, if I feel guilty, if, I, if I'm just not making time for those kinds of outlets where I just love sports and the GM side of sports, that, that is a major red flag when your pleasures start to lose their pleasure. It, a lot of folks who talk in this area of burnout, the, the transition that they talk about, uh, they talk about when compassion satisfaction turns into compassion fatigue. Um, that those things that, uh, whether it's compassion or passion, that my heart goes out to, and there's this level of satisfaction f- that I get from it. Uh, I give, but it gives more, even if the relationship itself isn't giving more, but just what I get out of doing it. There is this net gain of compassion satisfaction. When that turns into compassion fatigue, when those things that used to be an emotional net gain become an emotional net loss or they just fade away, that's, a, that's one of those where you need to be in touch with a small group or somebody where you can say, you know what, I'm struggling, I'm noticing this, it's not good. Um, and just verbalizing that so that you will actually make the kinds of choices and decisions that you need to be making out of that so important. Listen to your body. Uh, our bodies will tell us when we're not living well. Um, it, you know, it could be getting sick frequently. Because you know, when we live under too much stress, one of the first places that our body pulls from for those extra reserves is the immune system. Uh, more frequent headaches or muscle pains, noting changes in your uh, appetite, sleep habit, clenched jaw when you're trying to relax, or digestive troubles. Uh, usually for me, what I see is I wake up frequently wanting to know what time it is to make sure that I'm not late for something that's coming up, and I have a tight, clenched jaw that often I will wake up with a headache. Now, I can go get a mouthpiece and I can put in and it prevents the kinds of things that are going on with my jaw that gives me a headache. That doesn't solve the problem. That is a warning sign that I can fix the warning sign and not fix the problem and I'm not listening to my body. I would also say listen to your family. That your family is probably the people who are going to notice first. They are going to be the ones who know you best and can tell you're just not you. And my biggest piece of encouragement and advice here is don't be defensive. They're not saying you're not doing enough. Let them care for you and and point out those warning signs that you may be so distracted by everything else that's going on uh, that you don't see. Yet, and then one other that I'll bring up here. Uh, listen to how you read your Bible and pray. Um, it, when, when you read your Bible, are you just checking off something to do so God will get off your back and you started the day with better karma? When you pray, are you just telling God everything that you've got to get done that you want Him to get behind it? Um, I remember one point for me. I came home. Uh, it wasn't when we were living here in North Carolina. We were in a different state. Uh, our pastor had preached a great sermon on the patience of God. And I went home and I was, I was put out. I just didn't, I didn't have the bandwidth for one more thing that I needed to do and to focus on. And, and as I was just listening to myself, I realized this is not the way that I should respond to a description of God being patient with me. I just can't handle you being patient, right? I mean, that's dumb. Uh, and so really, that's where the, the booklet that I've done on God's attributes and learning to rest in God's attribute came out because I realized I was just not engaging with those things well. And so again, I, I would encourage you to take a look at that. Now, we, we kind of wrap up here with this subject of 
the gospel solution for burnout. And I, I think if we're not careful, practical presentations have a strong tendency to reinforce burnout. Because they tell us all the things that we need to do. And I got a chart and I can go and I can, you know, I just, I got all the stuff that I need to do. And the more practical it is, it can almost feed that sense of, here's what you need to do because this is what you've been missing. Um, And so I want us to take a time here uh, to look at Hebrews chapter 10. And I want it to be much more than a nice little devotion to provide closure at the end of a presentation like this. I, I want you to take everything that we've been talking about and, and use that to help you enter into Hebrews chapter 10 uh, to let it be uh, your story. And so we look at it here. It says, for since the law, you know, that's all of those things that I felt like I need to do in order to please God. Uh, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, uh, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Again, I just want you to hear that kind of repetitive drive, doing the same thing over and over again, hoping that the next time that it's going to satisfy, it's going to be enough, that I've just got to get this done. And, And the author of Hebrews is saying, No, that doesn't work. Otherwise, they would have ceased to be offered. We would have done them and we would have gotten the relief we were looking for. Since the worshipers, uh, having once been cleansed, would no longer have uh, any consciousness of sin. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin every year. And we can feel that, not just in sin, but in our to-do list. The more we do, it just reminds us of everything that has to be done. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came to the world, He says, Sacrifices and offerings uh, you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for Me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written for Me in the scroll of the book. Uh, When He said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offering of burnt offerings and sin offerings. Um, These are offered according to the law. Then he had it. Behold, I have come to do your will. He abolishes the first in order to establish the second. Now that can feel a little wordy, but I want to go back to that image that we created just a moment ago. We are not God's employees. We are not just trying to do everything. He doesn't delight in an ever-increasing bottom line. He delights in us as His children. In the same way that when we see our kids doing the things that they were made to do and that they were passionate about, that it excites our soul. That is the Father who sees what we're doing. And we have children and we don't really, you know, we don't know what they're going to be like and we enjoy getting to know their personality. Um, God as our Father crafted us in particular ways with interests and passions and those things so that as we do them, we are fulfilling His will in the way that it talks about here. And it says, And by that, we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And again, this is what should change the motive for everything that we do from what drives us to burnout to a much more restful form of work. And every high priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And He takes that posture of rest to, to show us that it is we can rest in what He has done. Waiting from that time until His enemy should be made a footstool as a feet. For by a single offering, He has perfected for all times those who are being sanctified. 
And that's the kind of guarantee that we can, we can step back and say, God's will fits in God's provision. What God wants to do in and through my life fits within the 168-hour week that He has given me. And God honors my finiteness oftentimes more than I do because He views me as a child that He delights in seeing me grow up to maturity, not just an employee that He wants to get as much from as He possibly can. And it's from that that we can go through and look at our lives and say, how? How do we begin to look at our schedules and make cuts and focus our attention on those things that are most important and to do our work from this spot of what I would call restful work? It's not that as Christians we stop striving. We have the greatest mission in the world that should motivate us literally to the ends of the earth. But how do we do it with a sense of rest, both in God's fairness and His empowerment, uh, that we don't chew ourselves up and spit ourselves out as we do it? And I hope that this resource has given you something to help you think through uh, how you can arrive uh, at that kind of place. Um, but we arrive at that place through uh, active dependence uh, with God. Uh, and so I think the best way for us to conclude uh, is by prayer to God. Uh, so would you pray with me? Lord, we come to you. And we are so glad that we serve a good God. And part of your goodness is your fairness. Lord, we, you tell us, any who are weary and heavy laden, come to you. Uh, that your, your burden is light. And Lord, in the midst of all that we try to do, and oftentimes think that you expect every bit of us, we, we just admit we doubt that. And so Lord, I pray that you would take this time uh, and that you would use it for your purposes. Uh, that we would have great passion in the things that we do, but could rest in your fairness in a way uh, that it did not lead us to the place of burnout. And we love you and trust you. In your name we pray. Amen.